the podcast starts. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the podcast in which people talk about horror. Sometimes they talk about other things, and sometimes they swear. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but as always, you can call me Dan. Right now, I'm on my own on a Friday night, but I do have the pleasure of talking to you. In a little while, you'll hear from my usual co-hosts, or two of my usual co-hosts, Ian Winterton and Kirsty Warrow, and we're going to be discussing a missed classic, the influential 1979 movie, When a Stranger Calls. This is the first time that we've ever done a missed classic, which has been missed by every single one of the hosts talking about it. We all watched this movie for the first time uh, for this podcast. In a little while you'll get to hear what we thought about it. So I'm on my own right now. It's continuing to be a busy time for all of the hosts on this podcast and it's been a pain to get us together uh, repeatedly. However, we've continued to record items which will go into future episodes. Um, as you will know if you are a subscriber to our Patreon page, because that's where these uh, extracts from um, upcoming episodes go and can be heard as soon as they're recorded. Um, So we have got together earlier this week, Ian and Kirsty and I had the pleasure once again of talking with uh, Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laurie Hitchcock Morimoto about the TV series Hannibal, as we did in an episode earlier this year. That was about season one of the show, now we're talking about season two, and once we've recorded um, a, a review discussion about the season with Kirsty and Stella and Ian and myself, then all that will go into an episode to be released shortly. But just the discussion with Laurie and Rebecca is already available to anyone who subscribes to our Patreon uh, feed for just £2 a month, I think. So there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. Um, Today, though... It's all about when a stranger calls. Um, I'm going to have to do a little bit of a preamble before we segue into the episode because what we normally do um, when we've done a pre-recorded segment like this is um, we'd cover the transition between the introduction and the actual discussion with the sound of the trailer of the film or TV show to be discussed. However, when it came to editing... I realised that if we did that, the major twist of the movie would be given away before we even start talking, because they gave it away in the trailer. So if you've never seen the film, don't watch the trailer. Just go to watch the movie. As we mentioned in the discussion, it's available for streaming if you are a member of Amazon Prime. I have now realised it's also on Shudder. So it's very accessible at the moment. The segue to this discussion will be covered by some music from the film. And then we're going to have a spoiler-free discussion where we try not to mention the major twist, which isn't at the end of the movie. It happens quite early on. So there's there's maybe 10, 20 minutes where we, we, we talk around that 
then I put the trailer in and after that it's all spoilers all the way so I will put time codes in the description um, of the show so that you can see how to avoid spoilers if you want to listen but you haven't seen the movie um, apart from that though um, I think I should just go over to the discussion and allow Ian, Kirsty, and myself from a few weeks ago to speak for ourselves and talk about this remarkable film. On my own, I'll be back at the end of the episode with the traditional recommendations and some details about what's going to happen in next week's episode of the podcast. Yes, there will be one. Um, I realise that our release schedule is somewhat irregular at the moment and I apologise for this. However, for the next two weeks at least, it's going back to a weekly schedule and then we'll see how it goes from there. Um, Because we're all so busy at the moment and because life's a bit strange, um, it's not like it used to be in the days of the first lockdown when everything just... Um, as near a damn it stopped and we had time to fill um, now everybody's got projects ongoing um, so it's not as easy to generate content with all of us involved however um, we're going to keep uh, continuing to produce the podcast on a kind of ad hoc basis and hopefully that's alright with you anyway Enough of that, let's go into detail on When a Stranger Calls. So hello dear listener, this is our missed classic for this week. I have the pleasure of being joined by Kirsty. Say hello Kirsty. Hello. Hello Kirsty and uh, and also by Ian. Say hello Ian. Hello Ian. Thank you Ian, that was perfect. <laughs> so hello. <laughs> Absolutely. See, I set it up, you delivered on yeah. it. That's perfect. We have a symbiotic relationship. So, and I'm also going to mention Stella, who's not here, but it's interesting that um, I think she would have liked to be on this particular podcast because we're going to talk about the 1979, uh, well, it may be referred to as a slasher movie. It's a, it's a psychological thriller um, mystery movie. Um, but she's... She was particularly interested in it because it's known to be quite an influence on screen. And uh, unlike every single previous missed classic that we've discussed on this show, this is one where all of the hosts, including Stella, had she been here, w- would never have seen it before. We've all watched it specially for this. Mm. Oh, well, you'd never seen it before, Dan. No, I, it was what I. It was my idea to watch it, wasn't it? But that was because I'd always fancied watching it. Um, and am I to take it then that, that the two of you would not never have watched it had I not mentioned it? I don't think so. It's, I don't think so well, I've I've known about it. I've known the name, and I've known that mm. Scream gets its opening from it. Um, I may even have pretended to have watched it in the past. 
but I have never actually watched it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm very glad I didn't know anything about it, as we'll get into, because I literally... I, li- I feel like I've managed to watch an unspoiled episode of... Uh, an unspoiled uh, version of Psycho. Oh, my right. dream is to watch... Is to, when my kids watch Psycho, they won't. But I, 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 I've known since I was about five what happens in Psycho, because I was told by my parents. But you've kept, you've brought up your kids in a windowless bricked room so that they cannot possibly be <laughs> spoiled on the ending of Psycho, well, is that right? I think that's... They, they don't know what happens in Psycho, but that's possibly, A, because I'm not going to tell them, and B, they're probably not interested in that movie. <laughs> yeah. So now they're 12 and 13, I might just make them watch it, and I'll probably go, what is this black and white shit? <laughs> and, that'll be the end, and that'll be the end of, uh, the end of Psycho. You've probably got a bit longer. I mean, I, you know, kind of with my students when they come to me and they're sort of 16, um, a lot of them haven't seen it and a lot of them don't know. know, And they don't know the twist. No. So, you know. I'm always showing the the horse's head in the bed clip. Um, (laughs) And the amount of students that just have never heard of The Godfather. Yeah. And certainly don't know what's going to happen to the racehorse. I just show that sequence because it's just so amazing. And... uh, (laughs) And uh, and then, try, yeah, and I probably should fill in a trigger warning for <laughs> in today's modern era because I've seen some students go very white. <laughs> yeah, you'll get cancelled. Can I share a slightly odd anecdote about the horse's head thing? I know we're completely off topic already. Well, we haven't really started talking about the movie, so I think we're it's fine at this point. No, but sim- similarly to, to Ian, like, I think uh, my my awareness of, of uh, the horse's head... Um, was spoiled when I was about five or six by my parents because they did, and how rural is this? Um, they did a sponsored bed push in like the 80s. Okay. Like, you know, it was like a, a, a race and beds were on wheels um, and you had to, like your bed, you, you had a team and you had to, to have a theme yeah. for your bed. And I've I think, seen those in Matlock. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, and, and their, their team theme was The Godfather. So there was a cardboard, they, my mum made a cardboard um, cardboard horse's head <laughs> to go with bed. <laughs> like, like at five, I had no, you know, obviously didn't know the film and had no context for it, but I knew about the horse's head. <laughs> anyway, bizarre flashback from my class. There we go. Cartoon. Cartoon. <laughs> I feel I should admit to being the only person here and possibly the only person in the world who's still not seen The Godfather. But I did know already about the horse's head bits. You've not spoiled anything. No. Um, and I have always yeah. I don't remember not knowing about the horse's head. Um, I think someone was making jokes about it when I was very young and it's just stuck in my head. Yeah. The, re- the reason I've not watched it is basic stubbornness because one of our tutors at, at uni insisted it was the best film I've ever made quote by some distance actually unquote so I just thought right I'm not going to watch that then and <laughs> I never have although I'm looking all, forward all, to all doing... I'll say Dan is when you do watch it you'll you'll you will you will go I wish I'd watched this years ago yeah I know you, you've now missed <laughs> out on lots of rewatches true there's a True. finite number of rewatches of The Godfather in one human lifespan. Yeah. And you've just denied yourself. <laughs> I will, I will admit. <laughs> Isn't I will that good? being ambivalent. <laughs> uh, it, it really is good. It really is good. And so, so, so is the sequel. Yeah, uh, and I, I look forward to watching both of them soon. I've got them both recorded. I haven't rewatched them for ages, so you've made me want to rewatch them. 
And in a weird way, the horse's... We really are talking about the horse's head too much, aren't we? But in a way, <laughs> the horse's head is inconsequential because it doesn't... It's just... Yeah. That's what I show to my students because it's like a mini short film in the middle of the film. Yeah. It doesn't actually do a lot to the plot. Talking Which of mini, mini short films... Well, yes, that's a good segue back to When a Stranger Calls. So <laughs> yes. the reason... Often when we do these Miss Classic episodes, we'll do a bit, a kind of spoiler-free discussion and then move on to more detailed discussion. However, the big spoiler for When a Stranger Calls happens only 20 minutes into the film. So I think there's not much we can say that's spoiler-free, really. Um, so, no, because as, so, as, as soon as we start talking about events in the film and even who's in it, if you're sat, sat down watching the film, you'll go... But I don't expect them to be in this film because this film is a is a going to be a claustrophobic hour and a half inside the same house, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's what I thought I was watching. So for that reason, <laughs> and so did I to a small extent. Um, so for that reason, uh, we will go into spoilers almost immediately. But just bef- before we do, I will give the listener a warning: if you've never seen this movie, 1979's When a Stranger Calls, it's it's a key. Um, if infrequently celebrated text in the kind of evolution of the the kind of slasher serial killer thriller movie um and i'd just like to ask my co-hosts would you recommend that the listener goes and watches this film as we record it's on amazon prime um but it may not it may not still be by the time this episode goes out so that was an absolutely from you ian go on continue absolutely it's cracking right what do you think Kirsty? I well, I think it depends on your personal taste, to be honest. I think if you like slashes, mm. then it has value. If you like cinema from that era, I think it has value. Um, it didn't grab me, I've got to say. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. So I thought we were, I just assumed we were going to have a unanimous across the board, because I liked it. I just assumed all three of us were going to like it. I'm kind of in, look, in like... the middle of it. Go on, Kirsty. Uh, yeah. There are no, there were, there were parts of it I really, I really enjoyed and found really engaging. I just the, the, and those parts were the the beginning and the end, and the middle I I didn't see the point of too much. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same track as that. I would say that it it does have great stuff in it. The the beginning's really strong, the ending's strong, and I think Carol Kane is fantastic. Although. Um, and I'm going to say this in a way that's as spoiler-free as possible. If you do want to watch it because you want to see Carol Kane, I will just warn you that she's maybe in less of the movie than you expect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but but it, I would say it's worth watching. Although actually, maybe it would be just as good. And I haven't done this to seek out the original short film, The Sitter, which the the film is an expansion of. So the director. Fred Bolton and the, his co-writer Steve Feek made a short film in I think '77 called *The Sitter*, which is basically the first 20 minutes of *When a Stranger Calls*. That movie got them backing to produce a feature film version of it, and I think it's kind of very clear that the movie started as a short film, and, and then and then they went, oh, how can we expand this? I'm not sure, maybe like this. Um, I think that, that does yeah. give itself away a bit. Okay, so we have one thorough recommendation and a couple of qualified recommendations. Listeners, if you haven't seen it, go and, and watch it now, if you can. Um, 
But let's jump into the spoilerific discussion of When a Stranger Calls. On a warm September evening, Dr. Malakis? Jill Johnson was babysitting for the two young children of a wealthy doctor. Okay. Bye. They told her where they would be and when they would be home. They told her everything she had to know, except what to do when a stranger calls. Hello? Have you checked the children? What? Hello, could you get me the police? Well, there's really nothing you can do about it down here. Uh, Have you checked the children? He's watching me through the windows. Well, if he calls again, we can try to trace it. Why haven't you checked the children? Please, can't you help me? I'm all alone here. What do you want? Your blood. This is Sergeant Sacker. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Jill, just get out of that house. And the terror just begins when a stranger calls. So who'd like to go first? I think with, with the benefit of enthusiasm, Ian, I'd like you to go first, actually. Well, I was going to start by asking you guys, did you, because I sat down thinking it was going to be a home invasion, I knew so little about this, um, other than the Drew Barrymore bit of Scream was based on this, and I didn't realise that we were going to get the the big surprise and the dead children dead children was a refreshing uh, refreshingly horrible mm-hmm. um thing to happen in a movie you kind of so in a way it's kind of like oh my god that chilled me to the bone being a parent but also it kind of thrilled me watching a horror movie where they actually kill children because yes. it happens so rarely that they not on screen we should say yeah. but not yeah. on screen but it's still no, it's just, the fact, it's just the fact it happened and they yeah. do have that flashback where he's yeah. with the blood, it's it's pretty it's a pretty grim idea, and you. But I I was just wondering how much of did you did you get slightly taken out of it by by thinking you were watching watching you know the babysitter in the house for the whole movie. Yeah. Because I kind of thought that's what I was going to watch. Then, yeah, yeah. But, so I was a little bit jarred, thrilled and jarred, and I was a bit like. I mean, it was it was good seeing um, Charles Durning because I like him a lot um, from Dog Day Afternoon um, yeah. and uh, various other things. He's he's a quality actor. Um, yeah, Tootsie, I know. If it had been George C. Scott, we would have been per- we would have been in heaven, wouldn't we? But um, <laughs> yes, although George C. Scott would not be in heaven himself, as Colleen Dewhurst is in this movie, but. Um... That we'll, is true. Yeah. We'll discuss that as we get to it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I also, um, I also loved the fact that um, I also loved the fact that we had Buckley, who is uh, like people know him as Camp Freddy, but for me, he is the Harrison Chase, isn't it? From Seeds of Doom. You're talking about Tony Beckley, who plays the Tony villain. Tony Beckley, the Buckley, uh, Tony Beckley. Yes, and, and, and Tony, he's Tony Beckley from Seeds it, of Doom. Yes, he's adored by Doctor Who fans for his turn as the villain in the Tom Baker Doctor Who story, The Seeds of Doom. Yes, that's true. And uh, Kirsty knows that. And uh, yes, yes, yeah, obviously. Yeah, I'm just sat here, just going, I don't 
going, I don't have anything to contribute to this because I already yeah. know. <laughs> and yes. What I'd like it's, to know about me, Tony Beckley. It's, it's one of the best Doctor Who's. It's great. It's, one of the it's best great. Doctor and Who's. He's a fantastic villain. Isn't and, he? And, and, and he, and he I, died six months after this movie. Yeah, and I, I found myself wondering, did he ever play a nice person in anything? Um, I hope he got to at some point because I do. I think he's he, he's a sympathetic villain, um, and he, and he's good at that. But yeah. I, obviously, he he's he's um, yeah, he's a, a a strong British actor who was kind of the lead in some kind of low budget movies and uh, and, and small TV projects, and he mm. he also played smaller roles in big bigger movies like he plays a, a villainous character in get carter with michael kane yeah um, i think i think he would have been a massive star yeah i i think he, i think this movie shows that he was on his i mean he went apparently he moved to america in about in the late 70s mm. and and obviously he got this part and and he would have been on his way to to make a real impression but yeah he sadly died very young only it's six weird, months after this movie kind of reminded me of bob peck who weirdly popped in my head because of Edge of Darkness and I was there going Charles Durning, no it wasn't Charles Durning who was in Edge of Darkness, so then I ended up with this uh, uh, with this sort of weird loop of thinking of Bob Peck taken too soon and mm. and then uh, Harrison Chase yes, Tony Beckley Tony Beckley, <laughs> Tony Beckley. Bless him. his name I can yeah. never remember um, yeah. <laughs> Tony Beckley who, uh, who by all accounts they, well, it was a brain tumour officially but Sheila Hancock his uh, his friend, the actress, has gone on record as saying she suspects it was AIDS. Um, oh, gee. So he might have had, might have been an early casualty. Yeah, um, I didn't know that, but yeah, that's very sad. I mean, I, I think he's he's very effective in this movie. Okay, so where I came with it from, uh, I knew the twist. And that's the, the, the main problem. I remember reading an article in Empire magazine where it listed loads. Of, I think it was called 50 Great Movies You've Never Seen. But then it immediately, like within a paragraph for each movie, told you the, the important thing that you would discover upon watching it. And with this one, it was the killer is in the house. <laughs> so, so, oh dear. But also, I read about it um, uh, for... Going back to Doctor Who, I read about it in an interview in Doctor Who magazine very randomly in the mid-90s. They interviewed a producer of Doctor Who, and it was one of those interviews where they just ask random questions. It's not about the show or, or, or a particular episode or whatever. And one of the questions was, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? And the, his answer, I don't remember anything else from the rest of this interview, but I remember this answer word for word. He said, I was always bothered by The Exorcist, and I thought, all right. And then he said, and I loved the first Halloween film. And I thought, all right. But then he said, but the scariest movie I've ever made is, uh, sorry, the scariest movie I've ever seen is a film called When a Stranger Calls. It's a fascinating movie about a babysitter. It scared the hell out of me and I loved it. And I thought, right, I must see this. But obviously, I've just never got around to it. And possibly the fact that I, I kind of knew the twist meant I didn't feel it was particularly urgent to see it, but I did go in there thinking, okay, so I know he's in the house, so what I'm kind of hoping is that that revelation doesn't come right at the end of the movie, because I want some surprising stuff to be in this movie. <laughs> um, so yeah. therefore, when it happened 20 minutes in, I was like, oh, okay. That would have been a hard one to, to, to sustain for 90 minutes. Yeah. Where's he calling from? And then she goes, 
Wait a minute, I can hear his voice is louder on the landing. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently that's what they, they tried to do in the remake. This movie was remade in 2006 by Simon West, and it's all yeah. in the house. I haven't seen that version, so uh, I, uh, and I hear it's not great. Um, and I can see why you'd want to remake it and keep it up, like expand the amazing opening claustrophobic opening sequence to the whole movie but at the same time how do you do that um without breaking it what we've got at the start of the movie is is a perfect kind of 20 minutes of tension with just carol kane um yeah did either of you know carol kane by the way yeah now do you know i was about to say i was i was wondering because i i until i googled her and realized i'd watched her in loads of things like dog day afternoon and taxi I didn't know her name, and I was wondering, I was trying to work out, looking at her filmography, was she cast in a similar way to Drew Barrymore, in that would most people be expecting her name to be above, above the titles, it's going to be her story all the way through. So when the twist happened, did it have a similar, oh my God, I didn't see, I really didn't see that coming, because that's Carol Kane. But I think she was quite early in her career, wasn't she? Yeah, I don't think she was so well known. But I do, I, I did have that almost reaction to the uh, as you would when seeing Drew Barrymore removed from screen after ten minutes, oh. because after the twenty-minute opening sequence, Carol Kane just disappears from the movie, mm. and for a while, it's just not even clear if she. Um, escaped the killer or what and I, 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 I did sit there for half an hour going is Carol Kane dead or what there were a few clunky I mean, I admit it's not a perfect movie it really got me and I really it made, it made me tense a lot um, which is a which is you know it made me made me not want to be watching it in a sofa because of the dead space behind me which to me is the uh, you know the litmus test of a scary movie is if it makes me feel like someone's behind me then, right. uh, and when I go to the toilet, I get followed down the corridor. That's that's the kind of, uh, you know, the ultimate expression of that is like The Shining or The Exorcist or something. And this was like, you know, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't go out of the way and say I've just seen my new favorite movie, but compared to compared to quite a lot of other lost classics, I have a lot less problem with this one, and I enjoyed it all the way through. <laughs> but but there are some there are some clunky bits, like it was a bit. So is, I, there's just one bit of dialogue saying she's fine. Yeah. So if you miss that bit of dialogue, you might be going, where's the babysitter? And in some ways, it would have been better to kill the babysitter. But then they wanted to come back to her at the end, didn't they? Well, that's interesting. How, well, let's just talk about the opening for a bit. So yeah. I, I thought it was just an incredibly strong piece. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just that opening shot, which is Carol Kane with her, 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 stud, her books of... Um, study materials walking to the house where she's going to be babysitting and it's just essentially a locked off shot of her walking up the road for a long time while sinister mm. string music by dana kaprov plays on the soundtrack i i just remember thinking that was a really strikingly tense um introduction and then uh, and once she's in the house uh, well she she doesn't know she's alone she thinks the children are asleep sa sounding upstairs and she mm. starts to receive the kind of spooky phone calls with the message have you checked the children um and i did wonder why she didn't check the children <laughs> kirsty's nod nodding vigorously so, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I think they tell her not to, don't they? No, I know, I know, but he's yeah. Okay, fair enough. The, 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 but that it, for me, that's one of the things that so kind of seems seems clunky. 
is the mother going, now don't go and check on them yeah, <laughs> at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So that they're setting up that idea that, you know, that then there's a conflict between that original kind of directive, don't go and check on them because they're poorly. I mean, if yeah. your children are poorly, you go and check on them. Or you don't go out in the first place. Yeah, yeah, There were quite a few things that didn't quite work. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't believe the police. I thought it was a trick because I don't believe the police yeah. can uh, listen on your calls and keep them talking. Yeah, um, well, I'd like to look into. I'd like to look into the tech and see if that is possible. Yeah. <laughs> what What I found a bit clunky, and by the way, there's a, a nice person on Twitter called. Um, at Stabby Time TV, who I interacted with about this, um, they were very excited that we were going to do When a Stranger Calls, and they said it's the greatest opening to any horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think that, that I wouldn't quite go that far, but I did enjoy it. Um, and the one thing in the, the in the first twenty minutes that I found a little bit um, disconnected me from it slightly was that. She she rings the police. I love the the kind of slow build up of tension and and the slow kind of step by step. Um, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to ask for their advice, and they give her some advice, like you know, just whistle down the phone next time he rings. I thought that was great, um, stuff like that. Um, but then when they say you need to keep if you keep him talking, we can trace the call. And she says, yes, but he never stays on the line very long. He says like one thing, then immediately goes. And they say, well, just try. So I thought, oh, so now she's going to, she is going to continue to call her. And eventually she'll somehow manage to get him to stay on the line long enough for them to trace it. But then what happens is that immediately the next time he calls her, for some reason, he, he stays on the line. It's like they but could not, have not spun that, that out. The, the police are supposed. To, the police are supposed to be busy, and your average police force has more people that can probably eat donuts and drive a car over to her house than than someone who's going to sit there going, "Do you know what? There's this woman who says she's a bit scared. I can't be asked to drive over, but what I will do is use some high tech stuff and sit here, yeah. monitor her call, and trace where it's coming from because we haven't taken it seriously. But we've taken it seriously enough to start tracing the call." <sighs> I suppose that's true as well. Um, yeah. So, 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 in in terms of its its un, its imperfection, yes, none of that stands up. And well, I mean, I could, I, you could you could find that very very irritating, but for some reason, me, well, Mister Critical, has decided to go with it. Yeah, I I don't think the stuff about whether it's realistic that the police would trace the call matters because within the world of the film, I mean, I don't know what the police force is like in that part of America in the late 70s. So I I can't, you know, um, I'm I'm not going to ding it on that. Within the world of the film, they can trace it, so they do. That's fine. But I just just kind of found the kind of story construction where you're kind of led to expect, oh, it's going to take um, a while or some trickery or something to get him into a position where he's traceable. And then, Mm -hmm. but but then he just suddenly is traceable. I thought that was a bit of a letdown. Um, Mm -hmm. But apart from that, I I thought it was a really um, tense opening sequence um and mm-hmm. uh, which i wish had gone on longer and i thought that her performance is fantastic um in case we haven't mm-hmm. made it clear to the listeners i i think of her most as um the ghost of christmas past from scrooge yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
was my my first contact with her as well, I think. Yeah. And all, and also, Mrs. Have fun storming the castle from uh, the Princess, Princess Bride, Bride as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so it's the first time I've seen her in a serious role, um, and yeah. I think she's yeah. just terrific. She she has that kind of precision in terms of timing that makes comedy actors really great natural horror actors. Yeah. I, I must say, I must say she was so good at the beginning that when she came back at the end it re it reinvigorated the i was enjoying it anyway yeah. but i think it really made yeah. it tense again oh yeah no it lifts I think, I her think. Getting the, when she gets the phone call in the restaurant yeah i was totally yeah. in the zone so i i, I was like <gasps> like if, if yeah. you, you know if you're watching a movie and you're already out of it then maybe you didn't but i was totally oh my god that was so chilling no, her, hearing I, that, her, her hearing that voice again really landed for me no, it, it does work, and I feel the main problem with the middle of the movie is that just she's not in it, and it does drop without her. Kirsty, what would you like mm. to say yeah, about no, either I, the opening or Carol Kane? Well, I'm, I'm, or both. I kind of inter- think yeah. interconnected, really. I, is I, you know, kind of yeah, have similarly have a, a kind of a nostalgic relationship with her as an actor, particularly as a comedy actor. And I've also was a, a kind of really enjoyed um, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where she was a recurring. Um, oh yeah, cast yeah, member I'm as not well. Seeing that, no. um, but but and she's completely bonkers in that. Um, so you know, she's she's a, a, an actress I have a great amount of affection for. And obviously, when when you know this was a, raised as a film to first kind of could look at, and I saw that she was in in it, I was interested because I've only ever seen her in comedy. Um, and I, you know, I think she's terrific in it. What I will say though is that you know they kind of because of the construction of the film. That there's what like a seven eight year gap between the beginning and the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And I I feel like they kind of cast her. They they put they cast an actress for the end part. She's right. I yeah, found her yeah. much more convincing as the mother with two children. Right. Um, than the kind of you know the babysitter at the beginning that didn't really work for me. I was like you know she looks she looks a bit too old to be <laughs> kind of babysitter. Um, <laughs> And, you know, or kind of college students, and I'm not sure if that was just kind of me looking at her, you know, kind of having, you know, a relationship with her where I'm I'm more familiar with her being older, or if it was just the kind of 70s styling of it where she, you know, (laughs) she looks middle-aged at the beginning. Um, And she actually looks, I think, slightly younger because she's got longer hair towards the end of the film. Anyway. So, so that was yeah okay, Carol Kane. Um, but she she was really really good. Um, I you know like Ian, I kind of thought I was watching this you know kind of single location. You know, I thought very early on, I thought oh, okay maybe this is kind of like Barty's party, but we're going to spin it. You know, we're going to be much longer in terms of lots about the off what's going on in the off screen space and not quite knowing you know and, and you know kind of quietly ratcheting the tension. Um, which I thought, okay, well, that that could be really compelling, and I'm really interested, you know, in in films that do that. And it made me think a little bit about um, what did we see last last year at Grimfest? Is it the Oak, the Oak Room, where it was, you know, kind of single location? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that you know can work really, really well. So when you know, when we get the kind of the end of um, that, you know, that Act One, I was like, oh, okay, it's just Act One, and now I'm kind of interested to see where it goes because I, what I thought we were going to be in for this for the for the duration, um, it did, you know, like like I think both of you, I think like that that changeover, it was really, really, really tense. 
the music was doing a lot of work, the sound editing was doing a lot of work in it, and that was really great. But the actual kind of transition from Act One to the rest of the film felt a bit clunky. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know it was kind of I think at th that point when we kind of got to the the transition between Act One and Act Two, I went, oh yeah, okay, well that's why it's like Scream because you know here's mm -hmm. this self-contained thing that obviously is going to you know kind of develop into the rest of the film, but not in a necessarily a kind of a linear way, more in a bit of like a way. It's a, a very yeah. kind of jar. It's a very kind of jarring handover, really, isn't it? Yeah. From Carol, <laughs> literally in the space of two shots, it's like this is Carol Kane's movie. No, yeah. it, now it's Charles Durning's movie. The door opens, and yeah, then it's all about him. I, one is I, what I, what I realised watching this, and I don't think I'd admitted it to myself before, is that I'm not a fan of Sasha generally. Um, that's not my kind of horror. You know, I did find it tense. It was really, you know, impactful. And, and like Ian said, the whole kind of dead children thing is really, mm. um, really affecting. But um, I think, you know, what I realised at that transition was, oh, okay, it's not her story. And actually, I was quite enjoying her story, thinking yeah. about how she was going to deal with it. And suddenly she was just gone. And it just became this very male story about this, you know, male perpetrator. Um, and then the kind of male cop who kind of goes after him, and you know, yeah, it just becomes it became less interesting to me as a female viewer until the ending, and she turns up again, and now I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I think I think the interesting thing with the cop though is that is is he with him being basically a murderer, <laughs> or you know, he's, yeah. he's basically setting out to not just bring him to justice and be a hero. He's just like I'm going to put him down. So I think yeah. they're putting him. He's a sort of Stone Age man, um, who's 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 put up. He's and it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see debate how deliberate it is. But he seems to be the way he's dismissive of the female um, psychiatrist, yeah. who's, who's not portrayed to be bad at her job or some bleeding heart liberal. No, I think she's she's a very good professional. And he's just he. So his sort of reaction to her isn't necessarily supposed to be what we should think. Uh, so I, I think there's some argument that yeah. the, male, the maleness of it is not necessarily on the side of the maleness, no. and the person that the person he's hunting is is in some ways isn't isn't your typically macho killer even. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and he's, I a bit, he's a bit. He's English for God's sake. So he's <laughs> yeah. Even so yeah, American. obviously, obviously. Yeah, slightly queer code because of English. No, I, I think it was, it's interesting the film doesn't really offer, does it? Or at least I didn't feel like it did, a kind of clear kind of indictment of um, the, you know, kind of American system treating him as somebody who is, um, who is you know, kind of psychologically ill rather mm -hmm. than evil, outright, you know. Um, and so... Yeah, and and then again, that was something else I found a bit clunky. I know we're moving sort of more into Act Two, though, but it's like, and suddenly he escapes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, and he's, you know, and part, yeah. of, part of it is, oh, he escapes because he's not being, you know, kind of secure, uh, securely, you know, kind of um, detained. There are quite a few things where you could just go, that's quite clunky, and this here's how you could have fixed it. Yeah, and but but in terms of what he was trying to do, the the, the sort of deeper stuff, I like the fact that. It starts off in a really posh house that he invades, and then it spends most of the film with the homeless, sort of humanising them, and yeah. and 
and he's kind of drifting amongst them, being invisible. Um, Feeling a bit like Taxi Driver? Well, well yeah. yeah. I suppose. I, I kind of certainly kind of got a little bit of that from it, I think. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But yeah, I guess it came from that whole era of movies that was quite street and the fact yeah. that Dog Day Afternoon, then maybe there's at least two people in the in the cast from Dog Day Afternoon as well, so that suggested plucks them from uh, the mean streets to be in the movie and give it that, give yeah. it that sort of sort of naturalistic kind of feel. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I guess when it comes to being a fan of slashes, I'm not. I hate. I don't know. I guess what you what depends what you call a slasher. I hate. Friday the 13th and I don't like Freddy Krueger movies and and I guess this was more like the first Halloween um, which you know was very effective and actually there isn't very much gore in it mm. I don't like it when they have the gratuitous gore but when they have I'm going to be I'm going to scare you with some ice cubes coming out of a thing or in other movies turning the tap on you don't know what you know or just the phone ringing and you know the the presence of the those big phones on the desks i was getting quite going wow this is uh yeah this is the phone has become quite oppressive in this film um, <laughs> so other people have um, other people have written about how it's the phone is seen, the phone is seen as the way to call the police and it becomes you know it's your savior usually Mm. And in this film, it's, it's the thing that brings the bad guy. <laughs> That's the poster, isn't it? It's Carol Kane's eyes looking very fearfully yeah. at a huge telephone. Um, yeah. So, Attack of the yeah. killer telephones. And that, that, reminded, that reminded me of Ringu with the telephones. and. Mm. Isn't how... Ringu a videotape? Yeah, yeah, but then the phone rings. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's been Having to tell you. <laughs> I can't remember. Does it tell you you've got a countdown, or does it just go? It gives you a week or something. I don't know that, it, yeah. that there is any message if you're just supposed to know that it means you've got a week. But anyway, um, yeah. so any listener who's been and listened to our um, Halloween uh, episodes will will know that I'm I kind of come down with with Ian on my attitude to slashes and things. By the way, and I don't think anybody is a fan of Friday the Thirteenth, the film, because it's awful. People are fans of the series of Friday the Thirteenth because apparently some of the later ones are quite fun. I haven't seen any of them except the first one. Some people are crazy for those films. They absolutely love them. Worship the people that are in them. That no, the the genre has has the fa- has fans, but I think Friday Thirteenth, yeah, the the first film is just is is dreadful, and um, I, I don't know if it's anybody's favourite anything. But anyway, um, but no, with when a, when a stranger calls, I would argue that it's like the first Halloween. It's it's on that dividing line between being a slasher and being a, a you know a thriller. Really, it's a it's suspense a slasher. He's not a guy with a knife. He doesn't have that many victims. It's not kind of about that. Um, you know, yeah. a, a lot of it is, um, or trying to be, I think, kind of a hit. The middle section of the film is kind of trying to be like a Hitchcockian, hmm. um, let's track down the um, uh, the criminal kind of kind of thing. Um, hmm. So I, I, and in fact, I 
I probably uh, thought or expected it to be more of a slasher than I think it was really because it doesn't yeah. it doesn't go into those kind of cliche areas too much although certainly the mm. beginning and the end of the movie um, it, it is more in that direction can I ask what both of you thought about Tony Beckley as the killer in the movie who is called the very English name of uh, what's he called Kurt um, I just have to look it up I'm afraid sorry Kurt is it Oh God, is it? Uh, he's Duncan or something. It's no. called Kurt Duncan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. They don't really explain anything about him except no. he's a he's an English merchant seaman and he's crazy. I guess um, they don't really go into much detail at all. But I do yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'd be interested to know what what I, either of you thought about him as a villain and as a performance from Tony Beckley. Um, Kirsty, can we start with you? It's, well, I've not. I mean, I literally finished watching the film about mm. half an hour before we started re-recording. So um, that's fine. Just I have had a huge amount. So I thought, um, and again, I suppose it's in that middle section that we get to sort of see him, you know, as as physically on screen. He has more screen time, um, and so you know, he and we see him generally speaking in uh, more kind of ordinary situations after yeah. he's escaped. Um, and so he seems more human and more sympathetic. Um, the flashback when he's looking at himself in the mirror, sort of, you know, oh, yeah. from the, you know, torso, um, I thought was really kind of uh, compelling. And I, I am disappointed that it that the, the film didn't kind of go more into why, you know, his backstory. Um, and yeah, okay, that might have humanised him even further. Um, but it would have, you know, made him, I think, more of an interesting, a well-developed character. So I think he, he, you know, as it would, you know, talking before about the kind of queer coding, potentially is kind of going on in terms of his, his physicality and, and, and the Britishness. Um, you know, I, I was starting to kind of, you know, put it together. I know Robin Wood wrote about kind of othering in, in American cinema and about this era and, and around horror. Um, and around kind of how queer coded characters often have a reflection of the things that are to be rejected in society. So I, I do wonder to what extent is if, you know, kind of, as this again, speculation, I don't know the actor at all, and obviously it's very tragic, um, but if he was, you know, kind of, um, if he was queer, and if he was, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of died from HIV, um, and I wonder to what extent that also plays into the way in which you might mm. think about his character. Um, mm. As yeah, so I think again, it's, it's like I don't, you know, I don't have anything that's particularly clear about this at this point. It's just kind of initial kind of, of thoughts. Um, I did really like the end bit where the kind of the reveal of where he is in in Carol Kane's apartment yeah. at the end was pretty great, horrific. Yeah. And, and that 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 sort of sequence where he's pulling at her and pulling at her nightdress, I found really just uncomfortable. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, so I, his performance, I thought, was great. It was really, you know, kind of interesting. And the bar scene as well with uh, with I don't remember the name of the actress. That's with Colleen Dewhurst. Yeah, yeah. I thought well, that was also really interesting as well to sort of set him up as being, you know, kind of somebody who wants connection with some with with people, um, but is you know kind of not particularly <laughs> adept at getting it um and then he's also made the victim you know by that horrific kind of yeah, attack yeah. that he suffers 
Um, yeah. So I think the film is, you know, in the in that middle section, trying to position us to sort of seeing him, seeing him as sympathetic. I think if it wanted us to see him as more clearly a monster, then it would work harder yeah. to do that. And I, I think maybe yeah. they're trying to set up a contrast there between a kind of sympathetic seeming quote villain and the, the Charles Durning mm. character's kind of very vengeance focused um, yeah. uh, kind of biblical um, intent to put him down um, I, I think Tony yeah. Beckley's performance is, is great and, and it is the ho- all the scenes with him are compelling and kind of uncomfortable because he's got this ability to seem uh, sort of pathetic and sort of sympathetic but also dangerous at the same time um, I think mm. he was probably mm. damned for through, throughout his career by being seen as like sort of a cheap Michael Caine and I think that comes across here um, I I think mm. maybe, maybe this movie and this performance are better than the kind of things that uh, Caine was actually doing in his career at the same time I mean it was around about now when he yeah. also tried his hand at slasher movies in Brian De Palma's Bre- uh, Dress to Kill um, okay. um, and uh, I think I think maybe this is a more nuanced performance anyway It struck me that the because this is like a, I think it's a first movie, isn't it? Or definitely an early career movie. Yes, it is. Fred Walton's first and possibly only, oh no, not only, he made one more theatrically released movie and then spent the rest of his career in TV movies. Because um, because it struck me that it's made, it's in a typical way that people quite often do with their first movie. They either, they either break a mould, uh, which, is, which is the really good people, or they borrow heavily and i think this is a borrow heavily in that it made me think of 10 rillington place and and even earlier than that made me think of um peeping tom and that Mm. they're kind of british movies with british british creepy people in them with sort of with sort of homosexuality sort of unspoken (laughs) or 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 you know sexual sexual british sexual deviancy as they would have seen it going on, and I so I think in a way, they probably went, "Oh, we want someone British? What does it mean? Don't know exactly, but we kind of want someone British." <laughs> and uh, and so so I, part of me wonders if that was that you know they wanted the naturalism of films they'd seen set in New York, so they got people out of Dog Day Afternoon, and then they wanted a creepy British guy because they really liked Ten Wellington Place and yeah. Peeping Tom and movies like that. So it's uh, Ten Rillington Place. Now that's a great movie. But um, have you have you seen that? Another one I've never seen. I'm afraid. No. Which, I mean, that's again talk of like this. He's the poor man's Michael Caine, and he really is the poor man's Richard Attenborough. Right. Because Richard Attenborough in Ten Rillington Place is uh, is brilliant. So sure, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we should watch that. I'd love to see that, yeah. And they've recently remade it for TV, haven't I, haven't they? But I'd much rather see. Yeah, it which was all right with Tim Roth. Yeah, mm. well, I don't know if they remade the movie, but they based it on the based it on the case. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, well, yeah. no, it wasn't yeah, technically no, a remake of the movie. Places. Oh, was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. I think they didn't. They called it Rillington Place, didn't they? Not Ten. Yeah, yeah. So but that's because of the real location. Yeah, yeah. But um. Yeah, yeah, but um, no, no, no. I remember watching that and thinking it was all right, but it was really for me. It really was a case of it's been done. It's like making a mini series of The Bridge on the River Kwai. 
because wow. uh, you know you could do that, but <laughs> I think your family movie is so much better. Yeah, why why bother? Um, yeah. Okay, so let's talk uh, briefly. I've got my eye on the time, and I want to make sure we we get through the the um, you know all, all the big details. So let's talk mm-hmm. about Charles Durning. Um, do you want to go first, Ian? What mm-hmm. did you think of him and his character in this movie? Because I think it is very much um, a trio of performances that make up this this film. Colin Dewhurst gets a few moments, but she's kind of randomly in the middle of the movie and is then forgotten about. It's really about yeah, yeah. Beckley, Durning and Carol Kane. Um, mm. So so what do you think, Ian? It, because, especially because for like... For, for the middle of the film, Charles Durning is the lead. So how did that feel to you? Well, I mean, I guess... I guess... I can I'm I can be sympathetic to you guys feeling a little bit like the movie flagged um, when it went on to him. Nothing to do, not necessarily because he's you know he's great at what he does, but he, we've seen him before. We've seen him and a million other overweight cops who are coming back for one last case um, before. And he's a he's a brilliant actor, but in you know he's in much better films than this <laughs> often. Um, Dog Day Afternoon being being the one that always pops up for me because he's absolutely that's that's a movie I can watch over and over again, and he really is like cast against Pacino on the inside. He's the cop on the outside, just doggedly doggedly dealing with the situation. Mm-hmm. And in this, it was I mean he was no he was no um, George C. Scott in uh, Exorcist Three, um, but he was a. Uh, he was he was uh, he was very watchable, and um, I guess he didn't have much to do. I guess he was just he was just I'm going to find this guy. I've always wanted to find this guy, and then they gave they gave a midpoint, which was when he announces he's going to kill him mm. to that other cop. Um, but he'd obviously always been intending to do that all the way through. Um, so then. Yeah, I, I think I think they could maybe have gone a bit further in, you know, it's he's been corrupted by the case and he's about to become the thing that he always was set up against. Which I, I, was catch, catch bad guys. Well, he that's it. Bad guy, but he actually just becomes a hero who saves saves a woman in the end. So it kind of it's 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 attempt at complexity doesn't really doesn't really work. It's a bit one note. He just he just, he just comes in and saves the day in the end. So he gets he gets he gets off. With being a murderer, and and that mm. character arc that you just mentioned, which is that he, you know, is corrupted by the case or whatever, that does happen, but it all happens off screen, and it happens in between the scene at the end of the opening act where he turns up on the crime scene, and then seven years later, you know, he's become yeah. he's all that character development happened to him in the, in the ellipse between those two sequences. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it would have been good to see that. And I think I did discuss this movie with Howard. Um, our sometimes co-host, um, he, uh, he he had something to say about it, but I said, do you want to come on the episode and talk about it? He said, well, I don't really have that much to say, but he did think that, that Charles Durning was miscast. He said, he he's a great actor, but he's never struck me as an action hero. And and there is what, like the sequence where he's half running around yeah. the streets yeah, yeah. And, and just looking very out of shape, and, you'd, and you sort of go... Uh, 
I'm not really either afraid of this guy or would necessarily feel particularly protected by this guy. So uh, I'm not sure what's going on here. I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, he does have a likable presence, but I thought that the movie didn't give him much to do, really. Can you argue that that's kind of half the thing as he's he really is like this is his last shot? At. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I guess we're probably, in a way, we're maybe giving them way too much credit um, <laughs> for for, uh, for all this psychological depth. Um, well, sometimes you you don't have time in in making a movie to, to do, and also we don't really know the time scale if. How long between the producers going, we love your short film, The Sitter. If you can write us a script, turning it into a, a feature film by next week, you can film it. You know, yeah, yeah. did they have that long to think about it? Um, Kirsty, uh, I'd be interested to know if you had any thoughts about that character. Uh, um, just that, yeah, I mean, like Ian said, we've seen, we've seen this kind of character, or well, I'm not sure if it was you, Dan, sorry. No, it um, just, we, Yeah, I've seen this kind of character a million times before, this kind of arc of, you know, kind of, you know, an avenging cop um, taking the law into his own heart, hands um, and that kind of stuff. And I, again, like, there could have been so much more complexity. The film could have asked more interesting questions about the kind of righteousness of, of, of what he tried to do um, or what he wanted to do by having him not bloody do it at the end and not becoming the, the man who saves the woman. Yeah. Um, you know, and the film, I mean, to you know, it, to to maybe unduly give it more kind of Hitchcockian credit that it, it, it deserves, it doesn't hang around at the end. Like, you know, <laughs> it's done and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. they're out, um, which is, this seems very kind of Hitchcockian. Um, but, you know, so there's, there's not an awful lot of sense of, you know, kind of his, you know, the, the aftermath of the impact of his decision other than, you know, her and her children are fine, um, which is okay. Obviously, that's kind of what we want because we've been with her from the beginning, or at least we've seen her from the beginning, and we don't, you know, the, the kind of threat of what might happen to the children is pretty large because of, of the beginning. And obviously, we don't want, you know, we don't want the killer to do that again, but it just, it seems like a really kind of convenient way of, of, of kind of resolving the issue is to have, the you know the kind of cop guy who's been chasing you down and who just you know suddenly happens to be in the right place at the right time just get there just in the nick of time and i know it's hollywood i know it's contrived um but i just you know and i think for me it's the, it, it was the kind of emphasis on that character and that arc that made me just go i'm just i'm not you know it reminded me of so many kind of like you know kind of john wayne right. westerns that i've seen <laughs> as a kid and hated because I don't give a crap about kind of, you know, the masculine arc or, you know, kind of males trying to take things into their own hands. Just is not the thing that I particularly enjoy when I'm watching a film. Fair there enough. We go. Well said. Anyway, it's <laughs> a very broad, a broad statement, but I, I stand by it. <laughs> and well said. Um, so that's fair enough. Going into the ending sequence of the movie then, um, I, I thought it, it stepped up... Um, uh, to a much more gripping um, kind of pitch as soon as Carol Kane reappeared. Yeah, you've got the seven years later time jump. Uh, well, I mean, it's not seven years later in the narrative, but it's seven year her character is seven years older than when we saw her last. And, and it kind of very efficiently sketches in who she is now, who her family are and, and, mm -hmm. and everything like that. Yeah. 
Um, and I thought either it was going to give us um, a narrative which kind of dovetailed her storyline with uh, Charles Durning's characters and, you know, and that was where the resolution was going to come from. Or it was just going to go back to Carol Kane and she was going to, um, you know, have to uh, find a way to defend herself against this killer again. Um, in the event, it doesn't quite go either route, I think, because she is essentially imperiled and then Durning just kind of appears right at the end to, to rescue her. Um, it is a few weeks since I watched the movie, but that's right, isn't it? Or is there a, another... Yeah. There isn't, like, a scene where they... Because we've not even seen them meet, you know. We didn't... Apart from when she opened the door and he was there, we didn't see them speak to each other yeah. or anything. So it's the... No, no so he no, just... No, um, So, to be honest, I can't even remember the mechanism by which she would get in touch with him. Do, or does he get in touch with her because he knows that... Duncan is probably going to go after her. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't, I can't he remember. Bother. It doesn't bother. It it's, again, it's something that doesn't make sense actually, because no one, you don't even know if she knows she's out. Oh, right. He's escaped. No one's like no one's told him. Oh, don't no they? Told him. I, 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 he, I get the impression they probably don't know because she's she's suddenly going. Well, I know I've had this nightmare seven years ago, but I'm going to leave my kids with the babysitter and go out to a restaurant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no, there's no. Oh my God, he's back! Yeah. In a weird way, it is a mixture of, it is a mixture of a few films, and it's almost like you could have sort of had that Jamie Lee Curtis thing of, oh my God, he's escaped. It's me. He's after. You know, yeah. it could have been the movie, or. Or, I mean, in a way, it's quite nice having this thing, but then there should have been some something between the cop character and her. But she just becomes... She puts in a very good perform, very good performance, but then she's just a damsel in distress. Yeah. That macho, macho cop who maybe was going to become a murderer then doesn't become a murderer because he kills her in the line of duty and it's a good kill. You know, it's a legal kill. Um, it's, it's, you know, and then there's not even the taxi driver bit at the end, which was, you know, the the brilliant end of taxi driver where, you know, just by luck, he's not a psycho. (laughs) That's the, that's the most amazing thing about taxi driver is we know he was about to shoot a Senator, but by luck more than anything else, he becomes taxi driver, have a go hero. Um, hmm. And that's that's why one of the reasons Taxi Driver is one of the best films ever made, um, and this film is not one of the best films ever made. Um, but it's a very effective chiller that really doesn't hold up too much scrutiny. Um, yeah. But you know, it, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to watch because you're there going, it's probably not a good sign for a movie if I'm there going, this is what could have made it better. This is, in fact. You could completely make a new film, and it wouldn't be this film, but it would have the sort of DNA of this film. Mm. You know, if if it had been the babysitter's, you know, if it had been her story all the way through, yeah, then maybe that would have been maybe that would have been fine. Maybe maybe having a female lead in those days. I mean, that's why Halloween was quite quite revolutionary, wasn't it? So. Mm. And Halloween had already been made by this point as yeah, well. But, so may, but, maybe... Yeah, these, 
these, these, these, had it been made and become really, really well known instantly, or was it creeping up? And be, you know, things didn't open in the same way as no, you know, that's true. From viral hits, did they? So these, the people that made this film, were very much in the old school mold. You know, they liked Dog Day Afternoon, uh, and 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 films from the 50, 70, early seventies and sixties. And they made quite a traditional movie that that had a. I mean, the twist, you know, would have owed more to the fact that they loved the feeling that Psycho gave them than than you know. Whereas Halloween is a thoroughly modern movie. Yeah. When you say um, the twist, you mean the revelation at the end of the first act that he's in the house. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that. That's that to me is. Oh, just do you remember what it felt like to not know? Hmm. What happens to what happens in Psycho? Yeah, but um, well, we're getting towards the end of our time, so I think we should start yeah. to wrap up. Um, I do. I, think... I just said to the listeners, in case it has crept onto the audio, that my youngest has been put to bed by his mum, and I've been trying to mute, but Bless then him. it just keeps happening. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. So, so... So the sounds of children screaming in the background yeah. is nothing to be concerned about. <laughs> oh dear God! I mean, it's apt. It's an apt kind of, you know, yes. atmospheric sound. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's, he's screaming in the toilet, but that's because he doesn't want to do a poo. Well, I just have a choice of wonderful images in my mind right now. So marvelous. Um, uh, <laughs> So that that's bringing us to the end of the movie. Then I do think that the uh, the final act of the movie is um, is really enjoyable. Um, I was on the edge of my seat, and those credits do come up very suddenly. It's like ah, and the movie's over. Yeah, no, but that last shot though, the mm. kind of double exposure With the shot, eyes, yeah. Yeah. It's just beautiful. I mean, yes, that, yes, yes. that made me go. Like, I like. I got. I got to the end of the movie and kind of went. I mostly don't like this, but uh, that last shot made me go. Oh, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, good yeah. to hear. No, no, there, there, there were some really. Always my criticisms of films that don't quite work is there were some really good scenes, but as a whole, the house of cards collapses. Mm. So, so you know, you were right. You were right to not find this amazing. But I, but but for me, it really worked on the, on the jump scares and the yeah, stuff, and also stuff we take for granted now. Yeah, and I think so. The yeah. the, 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 the it, you know, I mean, when we've talked about before about the idea of the um on the podcast about the idea of icebox logic that that you know the Hitchcock idea of you know as long as the film works for you when you're watching it, then that's fine. It's you know it doesn't really matter if it falls apart under scrutiny later on as long as you you know you can. And engage with it. Well, in, in, but but yeah. but I would say but I would say the was it Hitchcock who said that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but his his movies, I think he was. I think he's saying that good movies shouldn't make you go. What? What about that? Oh no. And no, what he, what he said is he didn't care if that you know if afterwards you you realised that it was all contrived and it didn't work. Yeah, no. I, well, I guess that's a debate amongst filmmakers because some people are very much. Like there's nothing worse than going than yeah. than yeah. feeling a bit. For me, there's nothing worse than feeling a bit conned by a movie and going, mm. oh yeah, that didn't work, did it? Oh, oh, I suddenly don't want to go and watch that movie again now. 
Well, I think no. it's the difference between an entertainment movie that wants to be watched once and, and a mm. movie which maybe has more artistic pretensions, which, you know, wants to be, uh, wants to withstand multiple viewings. And, you know, yeah. Um, I, also think, I also think Hitchcock was being, uh, was being very glib there because, and not very truthful, because his movies stand up like shit. They, really, <laughs> I mean, they get, I think, I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb too much to think most Hitchcock movies get rewatched <laughs> quite often. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, I haven't seen all of them more than once, so, but I've seen all of them. They've got Raymond Chandler style plot holes in them or anything. And so, uh, yeah. wow. <laughs> um, so. As we finish up our chats about when a stranger calls, uh, have either of you got anything you you'd like to add, Kirsty? Um, not not about this specific film, but about I suppose you know I think it, it's revealed or just reminded me as often I get reminded of of despite claiming to be some sort of a kind of you know fan of or expert in this field, there's still so much I haven't fucking seen. <laughs> Oh, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. But well, I think that's a good way, thing. In a way, all our worlds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's nice to have an excuse to watch something that I, I don't think I would have come to on my own. I wouldn't, it's not the kind of film that I would have gone, oh, yeah, I really need to see that. It's not my, it was never on my to-watch list. So, you know, it's always good to have, you know, particularly, I think, at, at my time of my advanced time of life um <laughs> that, that oh. you know if you people are going to come to me and say oh you know watch this because you're learning about something for example should, should, should we watch 10 Rillington place i, I mean I, i'm Is happy it... to say any any in fact Is you that... were talking about talking about um you know kind of friday the 13th again i've not i think i've seen the first one i haven't seen any of the others i've, I've happily kind of Do you know what i don't even have that. i don't even know if i've seen I don't think I've actually seen them. I just know I don't like them. So maybe we you just need to... Because they're just cheap. <laughs> cheap. <laughs> apparently, apparently part six and seven is where it gets good. Imagine that. Imagine that. But, you know, it was a different time and, and the studio economics were different. Well, it, they made money, so nobody cared that they weren't any good until part six. So... <laughs> Just, but I will yeah. say this: the theme tune. If you if if you don't know anything else, check out the theme tune to Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, which was the three D one. I found this out accidentally. Wow, it's funky. Go and check it out. <laughs> I think it was probably on the on the uh, what the the um in search of darkness documentary that put me onto that. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, the final thing I want to say. Well, actually, Ian, do you want to do you have anything final to say about when a stranger calls? Um, no, I possibly like it less now I've talked about it. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, well, the thing I will say is, if if you did like it, then uh, I do recommend the sequel, which I watched, the TV movie sequel from 1993, which is also directed and this time solely written by Fred Walton. It's got the somewhat unprepossessing title of When a Stranger Calls Back. But oh, yeah, no. But it does have Carol Kane and um, uh, and Charles Durning back, oh, and, okay. I, and, and, and I just decided to watch it on the grounds that I want to see more of her. Um, yeah. and uh, it has a kind of actually quite kind of modern day kind of reboot structure, which is that it starts being a, about a babysitter again in a similar situation, but she later calls on the help of her university 
counsellor, who is Carol Kane's character, and she calls on the help of um, uh, of Charles Durning. Mm. Um, and it still has that strange structure, which is that the middle act is a lot weaker than the beginning and the end, but the middle act of the sequel is probably better than this one because the middle act is Charles Durning and Carol Kane working together to track down the killer, and, and that's kind of a more engaging dynamic. Wow, double act. <laughs> On that note, I should just mention something about Fred Walton. The other movie he made uh, theatrically was April Fool's Day, which is a slasher movie comedy. I haven't seen that, but no. he did have a long career in TV movies um, going up to the late 90s. And he directed, uh, I think, one of the many TV movie sequels to The Stepford Wives, which I've just started deciding to investigate. Um, because we, we mentioned when we we're talking about Rosemary's Baby, you know, there's a TV movie sequel to that. I think this must mm. have been a big thing for a, a few decades. Doesn't seem to really happen now. Um and uh, I remember in in the late 90s, actually, I caught a movie that Fred Walton directed, a, a kind of um, another scream-like, uh, scary phone caller movie called Dead Air, starring Gregory Hines, where the voice on the phone was, I think, Veronica Cartwright. And um, I remember it got two stars in the Radio Times, but I watched it and really enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> it's just, just good pot-boiling stuff. Um, and I think someone's put it on YouTube. I think I can say that because I don't think anybody cares. Um, so if you've got <laughs> nothing else to do, go watch Dead Air. And the final thing I want to mention is that just because I brought it up at the start of this recording, yeah, Colin, the reason why it was interesting that um, Ian kept comparing George C. Scott to it was because Colin Dewhurst was in uh, uh, when a Stranger Calls and Ian was obviously uh, comparing um, Charles Durning's performance to George C. Scott's in The Exorcist 3. In that movie, Colleen Dewhurst was the voice of the demon, but also she was at one point married to George C. Scott. So had George C. Scott uh, been... Uh, I th- that's I think where that, I knew her face from, from think, the... the the haunted haunted wheelchair. Oh no, no, he's not. No, that that was Trish Vanderveer, um oh, Ian, right. who is George C. Scott's other wife. By the time he married Trish Vanderveer, you know, uh, Colin Dewhurst was already in the past and divorce and all that. But um but no that oh, so but yeah, so George C. Scott has some history going on there and it wouldn't have been a comfortable experience for him, I suppose. Um but anyway, she she's a, the great voice of a demon, and I think kind of she's good in this movie, and it's but it's weird that she's just in the middle and kind of a major character for the middle of the film, but then completely forgotten about. It's another one of the kind of structural oddities of this movie. Um, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm not entirely yeah. sure what I, she I think, stands for. I think what I'm just thinking about it now, what I've realised with this film is the film doesn't really care about the outcomes of female characters. Oh. It's not well, really that interested in going, oh, here's what happens next to those. Don't worry, they were okay. Oh, I'll tell you what, though. In, gone. In, interesting <laughs> side note to that. In When a Stranger Calls Back, yeah, Carol Kane's character is in it. You find out what's happened to her in the 14 years since this movie. But her children and husband from the end of this movie, never mentioned. <laughs> never mentioned. <laughs> At <laughs> all. It's just like, I think it's fairly clear she lives alone in it. And oh, okay. just, just forgotten about. Yeah. Well, totally she's traumatised. She's uh, 
But uh, could could that be? I'm traumatized because it's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, I think quite possibly. Anyway, I think we're coming up to time, so yeah. I think we we've yeah, covered yeah. when a stranger yeah. calls. So that was great. Yeah. Thank you so much I'll for go and, uh, check on my children. Have you done a poo? <laughs> if you learn anything from this movie, Ian. Well, I am getting a kitchen knife. <laughs> I hope this isn't the last time we all discover a movie together because this no, was fun. Sure be. <laughs> so let's see what happens it's next. Quite fun. Yes. So that's when a stranger calls. So thank you very much, Kirsty. Thank you. And thank you very much, Ian. Thank and you. Back to whoever's in the booth in the present day. Twist! It's still me. Hello there. Here I am still on my own. Hope you enjoyed that discussion of the movie. Um, If you are familiar with the movie, hope it was sufficiently in-depth and we touched on everything important to say about the film. If there's anything we missed, please consider getting in touch with us via our Twitter handle at andnowpodcast or you can email us at uh, ambisoulslimited at gmail.com uh, that's a-m-b-i-s-o-l-s l-t-d at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts and we'll respond to them in a future episode of the podcast okay so this part of the episode coming towards the end is the recommendations section traditionally this week it might as well be subtitled Dan says what's on shudder um, because it was Halloween recently, I reactivated my subscription to Shudder um, to resample the delights on there. And I was scrolling through the movies on there last night and spotted a few favourites. So I thought I'd mention a couple. I'm not going to mention everything that's on there because I'm sure we'll come back to it in future weeks. But I'll mention a few things, not just one. So as I mentioned at the start of the episode... It's important to note that When a Stranger Calls is on Shudder these days, currently, um, as well as still being on Amazon Prime. And there's a, a extremely eclectic mix of movies, so I'm going to just go down the list and mention a few things. So, the first thing I want to mention is a wonderful uh, 1970 British horror film called The Blood on Satan's Claw. It's a very odd period horror movie about um, an outbreak of Satanism among the children of a village in, I think, 17th century England. Um, It's kind of post-witch hunts, um, but earlier than the kind of gothic Victorian period that Um, most British horror movies at the time tended to be set during. I have two thoughts immediately that come off this movie. One of them is it has an extraordinarily beautiful and foreboding musical score by Mark Wilkinson. I would say the movie is worth checking out just to hear that score alone. If you happen to be a member of Audible, um, there is an audio adaptation on there of the movie. It's produced by Bafflegab and the script is written by Mark Morris based on the movie script. And it's a very clever adaptation that um, finds a way to get a much more linear narrative out of the material. 
Um, it's got a number of uh, great actors in it who are very familiar to the genre of folk horror. People like Reese Shearsmith and Alice Lowe. And it's very effective. Um, but I would recommend the movie as well, if only for that um, score, if nothing else. There's one that's on Shudder at the moment. Um, just looking down the list, there are loads of things I could mention. I'm not going to mention all of them. Just going to pick a couple more. Um, Abel Ferrara's wonderful black and white vampire movie from the 1990s, 1997, I think. Um, the Addiction, starring Lily Taylor, Christopher Walken and Annabella Ciara is on there that's that's kind of wonderful um, and very stylistically unique as a take on vampirism david cronenberg's scanners always worth revisiting that's on amazon prime as well at the moment i think and the entire phantasm series that's quite a boon i've only seen the first phantasm which is um another 1979 film um, and uh, a remarkable, not debut, I think he'd made a feature film uh, before, but it's a remarkable early effort from its very young director, Don Coscarelli, who went on to write and produce the entire Phantasm series and direct, I think, four of them. Um, so I've only seen the first one, which I, I really loved, and um, I like the fact that I've got the opportunity to watch the rest here. They're all there, that's fantastic. Um, I think I've given you enough uh, recommendations there, but I'm just looking down in case there's anything else I should mention. Oh, The House That Dripped Blood is on there, yeah. I'll finish with that one. It's an Amicus anthology movie from 1970, and both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing are in it, so it will be covered uh, by myself and Howard um, at some point in our ongoing but very occasional uh, Howard Dan Cushing Lee series. Um, another movie that uh, out of that series that we have already covered that is currently on Shudder is um, the the Spanish horror movie Horror Express which is wonderful, and if you go back to one of our early episodes, you can hear myself, Howard, and our guest, Tim Shaw, uh, express delight at that movie for a long time. So, uh, yeah, so basically I'll leave it there, even though there are more delights within Shudder to sample. All right, so that's um, that. those are my recommendations for this week. Just to mention that next week's episode will be a discussion between Kirsty and myself about movies we'll never see or we'll never see again. Um, it's another Questions of Horror episode, although there's also going to be a Bag of Death segment in it, so you're going to get to hear Howard's voice again, um, and it's always good to welcome him back. Um, if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon then you can hear those items right now. They're already on the Patreon page, along with everything else we've recorded in advance. Um, but if not, 
then you just have to wait a week and hopefully that'll be worth waiting for. So thank you very much for listening this week. You can probably tell my voice is a little bit uh, strained today. Um, But hey-ho, this is the end of the recording. So you'll hear from us next week. Have a wonderful weekend and or whatever time of day or week it is when you're listening to this have the best time and thanks for listening bye bye you have been listening to and now the podcast starts produced and released by ambidextrous solutions limited presented by kirsty warrow ian winterton and td velasquez special thanks Greg Hume for our original theme music and Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at and now Pod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at and now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit Patreon.com forward slash and now Podcast. And now the podcast stops.